The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Rohini Kurup, and this is an episode from the Lawfare Archive for September 4th, 2021. Over the past week, the U.S. has carried out drone strikes in Afghanistan against suspected ISIS-K targets. Civilian casualties have been reported. For today's episode from the Archive, we're going all the way back to episode one of the Lawfare podcast from January 2012. In this episode, Benjamin Wittes sits down with journalist Shane Harris to talk about the future of drone warfare. It's a conversation just as relevant today as it was nearly a decade ago. Hello, and welcome to the Lawfare Podcast. I'm Benjamin Wittes. This is the first of what we hope will be a regular series of podcasts covering a range of audio content related to law and security, events, interviews, roundtable discussions, and other types of material we probably haven't thought of yet. Today's subject is a remarkable new article by journalist Shane Harris entitled Out of the Loop, The Human-Free Future of Unmanned Aerial Vehicles. The essay is part of the Emerging Threats series published by the Hoover Institution's Corette Toby Task Force on National Security and Law, of which I, Jack Goldsmith, and Ken Anderson are all members. Shane is a senior writer at Washingtonian Magazine and the author of the book The Watchers, which is a lively history of data mining. He stopped by the Brookings Institution recently to chat about his latest article. I want to start by asking you how much of this essay is real, how much is science fiction, how much you're sure is real, how much you think might be real. I assume none of it you're sure is fictitious. Well, there's probably less fiction in it than you might think. Um, The fictitious aspects of it are we do not today have autonomous drones that go out and prowl the skies looking for bad guys to blow up and making the decision on their own to to drop a bomb, to fire a missile. We don't have that kind of autonomous drone. But we could have it very easily. Technology is not the obstacle to building a system like that. Policy is the obstacle to building a system like that. So, for example, 
technologically speaking, there's no reason that any of the drones orbiting over Pakistan right now and keeping video surveillance of terrorist training camps, keeping tabs on who goes where, logging who those people are by the way they walk, by their thermal signatures, by eavesdropping, whatever. There's no reason why you couldn't train that drone that's already watching that camp to, at an opportune moment, take out the person who you say is target number one at that camp. That's just a matter of programming the drone to do that. Politically and policy-wise speaking, that's a fiction, you know, right? That's, we don't have that right now. The other sort of fictitious aspect of this, and I sort of start the essay out with it, is, you know, I don't think that we're on the verge of autonomous drones becoming self-aware and taking over the world and allying themselves with each other and overthrowing their creator, creators a la the Terminator movies. But what I found really impressive and compelling was that every time I interviewed somebody about this, somebody who was a technology expert or who worked in unmanned systems, and you would sort of go in that direction when you talked about autonomy, well, how autonomous could they get? Everybody would joke by saying, oh, yes, then we would have created Skynet, which is the <laughs> reference to the Terminator movie, right? And they're serious about that. I mean, they laugh about it almost as a way of alleviating the tension and pretending, well, if we maybe if we just sort of mention it in a, in a laughing way, it won't actually happen. But they do, I think, look at that as an outcome that could be real, that isn't necessarily science fiction, and that is something that probably most of the people I talk to would like to avoid. But, you know, it, it's definitely an outcome that they're aware of, and that would be the science fiction element, but, it, you know, it's more real than you might think, I guess you would say. And, and how... In your judgment, close are we to a world in which we could make self-aware systems, whether armed or not? 20 years? I mean, I, I guess if you, if you wanted to say self-aware to the degree that you could not just pre-program a drone to go out and do a certain mission and then fly back, which would be a fairly simple set of tasks, but to actually, you know decide when to take off, decide how to go into formation, decide when to strike. If you're talking about striking. Well, but, but, but those are all operational decisions. I mean, self-awareness is actually something a little bit deeper than that, right? Self-awareness is the drone or the robot or the being has a sense of itself and its own ambitions, desires, um, and I think the, the anxiety that underlies your piece is the concern that we're creating these armed systems that over time may have their own agendas. And I, and I guess the, um, that's, that's the sort of futuristic aspect of it that, you know, may have, that, that, that may be fiction, but, I, but I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what the time frame in which you see that being a reality looks like. Yeah, I would say it's 20 to 30 years. And I mean, and you could safely, if you just look at sort of the evolution of, you know, processor speed or sort of how far we've come and in, in the time we've come so far with, you know, unmanned systems and autonomous systems, sure, 20 years is safe. But, and if I'm wrong, and if it's 2032 and we're five years away, well, that'll look, you know, pretty amazingly predictive on my part. <laughs> 
Um, you know, I, I think part of the answer to that, though, is, I mean, I, I don't know that we've built anything in a robotic sense that is completely self-aware in the sense of what we think of being aware of its surroundings, trying to heal itself. But if you look at uh, information networks, if you look at cyber networks, which are largely automated right now for defending against things like viruses and uh, um, penetration attempts and that kind of thing, <clears throat> the network architecture is, if you like to use that analogy, self-healing, and that you can set up a network that knows when to shut off a piece of the network to uh, deny a virus or an intruder entry through a particular port or a system, and that is in effect self-healing, and then can go update itself with antivirus patches and the like. I don't think it's that much of a stretch to think about in 10 years networks, computer networks, that essentially function largely on their own. And in that sense, you know, is the network aware of a threat against it? Is the network interpreting, uh, you know, cyber traffic jams as something that it has to route around? And 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 you know, is it interpreting other malware as as enemies that it needs to defend against, either by sort of putting up the electronic barriers or even sending out malware of its own to counter it? I think in computer network architecture, that seems like like something that people are trying to do right now. Mm -hmm. So let's back up. What is the, maybe this is a question I should have asked it at the outset, what's the, the question that you started with in this paper? What, 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 what's, the, what, what, what's the question when you started this reporting that you set out to answer? How central are human beings to the conduct of war? and in this case vis-a-vis -vis drones, right, unmanned airplanes. How much of a role do we as human beings play in the conduct of aerial warfare? And what became pretty clear, just as you dive into the research, is that, and you could look at, you know, just look at the first Gulf War, and sort of the emergence of smart bombs and JDAMs and laser-guided munitions, and that was something that people really marveled at at the time because they thought, wow, these are bombs and munitions that almost sort of think on their own. And then you just use that as one bookend and drones in the present sense as another. And it's just obvious on its face that we play less of a role in the, system, in the, in the task, in the operational task of going out and flying around and dropping bombs. And what I wanted to investigate then was, okay, how did we get there? How attenuated is our involvement in these kinds of robotic warfare operations, and then where is it going 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now? And then the idea, too, was, you know, does it get to a point where we just don't have any role in this anymore, that we just build these things to go fight our battles for us? And throughout, I mean, it's in the title of the paper. It's in, um, it's laced throughout this is the concern, and it's laced throughout a lot of Peter Singer's um, book as well, this concern, this almost like mantra-like concern that human beings stay in the loop. Um, title of your paper is Out of the Loop. Um, talk about that a little. Why is it so a matter of such anxiety to Air Force people and to um, tech planners that humans beings be in the loop? And why do you seem to be arguing that that's actually not a sustainable position? I think they worry about it because they fear 
in sort of the classic sci-fi context of building these systems that they can no longer control and that either go off and do damage in the world or even rebel against them. I mean, people who, you know, technologists, I think, probably derive a lot of their inspiration from science fiction and the people I talk to, particularly in the Air Force, definitely fall into this category. They never want to think about war as being something that they don't control, that they don't have the say over, up to the point of firing the weapon. They, the human beings, decide who to kill, not machines. Um, and at the same time, just taking the Air Force and then even sort of the technology and planners within the Air Force, they're fascinated and clearly driving towards an outcome in which human beings are out of the loop. They use this phrase called on the loop, which is this point between being in the loop and completely out of the loop. Um, the Air Force has sort of a grand strategic plan where they talk about the phases over the next 40 years of moving from in the loop to on the loop. And when I talk to people at a policy level and even at an operational level, they like to tell themselves, well, we'll always stay on the loop. We'll always have one level of involvement or sort of one foot inside of it, and that will be we decide who to kill. We decide to give the order to fire. And they've sort of comforted themselves with the notion, I think, that as long as you've got that final say-so, even if you sort of offload all the rest of the decision-making and the gathering of information and the preparation of the battlefield to machines and make it automated, as long as a human being still has that one say-so over who fires the missile or when you fire the missile, that you're involved in the conduct of war. And what became clear to me was, no, that the further you get, you gradually step away from this and you are seeing these other tasks to a machine. And why do we suppose that we're going to, if, if you're on the loop making the decision of when to fire the weapon, but the drone has already done all the work for you, why do you think that that decision is going to look exactly as it would in the context of being in the loop? Why is the decision logic going to be the same and the decision-making process going to be the same for that? And why do you think that it will be as easy a call or not to fire the weapon if you haven't done all the groundwork? And they don't really answer that question. It's just, you know, the technology is moving to a point where it'll be more automated and more self-sufficient, but we'll be making the tough call at the end, and that's all we really need to concern ourselves with. And I just don't, that didn't seem, that seemed like they were kidding themselves tonight. And so I, I want to, you know, at the very beginning of the essay, you have a series of very striking data, um, which actually I'd like you to read. Sure. Um, you know, starting, starting with your um, comments about in World War II. Okay. Um, so it says, in World War II, it took a fleet of 1,000 B-17 bombers, flown, navigated, and manned by a crew of 10,000 men to destroy one Axis ground target. American bombs were so imprecise that, on average, only one in five fell within 1,000 feet of where they were aimed. Aerial bombing was a clumsy affair, utterly dependent on the extraordinary labor of human beings. Just one generation later, that was no longer true. In the Vietnam War, it took 30 F-4 fighter bombers, each flown and navigated by only two men, to destroy a target. That was a 99.4% reduction in manpower. The precision of the attack was also greatly enhanced by the first widespread use of laser-guided munitions. After Vietnam, humans' connection to air war became more attenuated and less relevant. In the Gulf War, one pilot flying one plane could hit two targets. The effectiveness of the human-machine pairing was breathtaking. A single smart bomb could do the work of 1,000 planes, dropping more than 9,000 bombs in World War II. 
By the time the United States went to war in Afghanistan and Iraq, one pilot in one plane could destroy six targets. Their weapons were guided by global positioning satellites orbiting thousands of miles above the surface of the Earth, and increasingly the pilots weren't actually inside their planes anymore. So when I read that, my reaction is, my initial reaction is, this is spectacular. You know, both on grounds of military effectiveness and on grounds of whether you call it human rights or civilian protection or um, you've gone from a world in which you had to kill a huge number of innocent people in order to destroy one target and spend a great deal of money and man power to do it to a world in which you um, with a much less expense can not target all those civilians and actually destroy the target with only one um, or more than one target with, with, with a single plane and pilot um, and with much less risk to forces. Um, why is this not simply a good thing? Or is it, you know, a good thing with dangers? Um, why, why shouldn't we be simple enthusiasts of robotics in warfare? I think it largely is a good thing. And on, on everything that you set up, you know, as you described sort of the narrative, you know, we agree. And I think that the right way to look at the advances in technology to this point are that it's saving lives both on our side and on the ground. It's, 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 it's allows you to be in much stricter compliance with the law of armed conflict. That's all for the good. The question, though, becomes what is the next stage in this evolution from the military's perspective? And just looking at their own stated plans, the next stage is, all right, we've got now one pilot controlling a fleet of drones. And by controlling, we don't mean sitting necessarily in a cockpit. We mean sitting in a computer terminal and telling five or six of these drones where to go. Okay, even more efficient. Well, one person can't control 15 drones, or at least, you know, we think that there's generally a point at which we figure one person can't control all these planes at once. So you have to start giving some of the control over to the aircraft themselves. And that's where I think you start stepping into this dangerous territory the closer you get to the edge of the loop. Because when you start creating systems that are thinking for themselves, what are the value judgments that they're using, right? I mean, what what are the the criteria that these aircraft or that these, you know, swarms of very tiny flying insect-like robots that the military wants to create, um, what are the criteria they're using for when to come back home, when to go attack something else, when they think something is attacking it? And you can answer that question by saying, well, we will code into the software exactly what the criteria are. But, you know, this is where you get now into the realm of science fiction, right? And, I mean, how much can we anticipate every eventuality with lines of software code. I mean, at some point, you want to build in autonomy to the system that it knows what to do if it encounters a set of circumstances for which it has no programming. Now, maybe that programming is just to fly home. But, you know, there's or, or, or stop what you're doing and hold in place until we can get more orders to you. But 
it just seems to me that the more you create, the more you head down this road of letting the machine decide for itself what it's going to do when it's out there, you run the risk of it doing something you really would prefer it not do. Right. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Right. So one of the things that you describe in here is that our concept of the drone, which is very conditioned by the predator and the reaper, uh-huh. is itself uh, really an artifact of our particular moment in time and that's going to be very quickly outstripped by uh, sort of dramatic coming developments in technology. And w- when you describe these autonomous systems, um, you're actually not thinking of an autonomous predator, right? You're thinking of something else. I, I mean, so talk a little bit about what the next 20 to 30 years in the physical development and the capability development, you know, beyond autonomy of these systems is going to look like? Um, the first thing is they'll get, the, the drones will get much smaller. You know, they will not look so much like airplanes as much they'll look like animals. There's actually a field of study called biomimicry. And if you look at the development of the newest systems, the newest drones, they're being built to look like birds or wasps or spiders. Um, they will be much smaller so that they can get into smaller places. Um, you'll see in the aerial drone context a movement probably away from predators and towards what they call swarms. So the Air Force talks about creating swarms of insect-like robots that will probably largely be used for intelligence and surveillance and reconnaissance. Um, that can you know go out and fly to a target and buzz all around it and gather all the kind of data through various sensors that it wants, or when the swarm decides it's the right time to sort of swarm onto the target and sort of you get this image of like you know someone being attacked by killer bees or something. Um, but they'll get smaller. They will become also much more interoperable with each other. I mean, a big part of autonomy lies not just in having a drone that can go out and do whatever a drone needs to do, but 50 drones that can communicate with each other and divide the work and divide the tasks and figure out what they collectively need to do. I mean, sort of going with the insect motif, it's a hive mentality. And a big part of where the research is going now is towards making those systems interoperable because from the ground controller's perspective, that's great. I have five drones up in the air. I don't have to worry about controlling all five of them. They're talking to each other about where the threats are and how close they are to each other, and they're staying out of each other's way. So they'll get smaller. They will get, um, they'll sort of, I guess, develop this, you know, 
community thinking, if you, if you, if you like. And we'll probably learn too um, if one of their drone partners is doing something that's you know counter to the mission. Will they resolve this by fighting each other, or will they <laughs> compensate somehow? And this is sort of you know this is logically where you want to go if you're building autonomous systems. This is the value of autonomy. So, and again, how much of that is speculation, and how much of it is a reality that we're already dealing with? I think it's a lot of it is reality. So if you look at you know drones that are being tested, for instance, on the U.S. border with Mexico for surveillance purposes, um, you have these very small-ish drones now that, when they're actually in the air from the ground, look like birds. In fact, they look so much like birds, you know, like a hawk-sized bird, that other birds will start gathering around them and start trying to interact with it because they're confused. They don't realize it's a robot. So you have those small drones happening. Um, in terms of domestic use of where drones will go in, let's say, the next five to ten years by, let's say, law enforcement using them with um, spider-sized drones for SWAT teams, let's say, for doing reconnaissance of a house in an emergency situation, those sized drones are being developed now. The only reason I think why you're not seeing them proliferate is there's not necessarily a market for them yet. But if you go and look in Iraq and Afghanistan, troops are on the ground right now who are carrying drones that they can carry in a backpack, you know, and launch with, you know, either by hand or with a little catapult device. So we see this sort of miniaturization of the drone happening already. That's, that's definitely here. And what will unleash that on a larger level will be things like, in the United States, the FAA easing air restrictions to accommodate unmanned aerial vehicles, which and, is something they said they're And what do. about swarm behavior? I mean, I you know, there is a NASA project in swarm behavior. There's, you know, I, we, we've, we've read stuff about it, but I've never actually seen um, any kind of a demonstration or report of a demonstration of actual swarm behavior by miniature robots. Is this still a speculative thing or is it a sort of ambition thing or is it or is it going on in fact in reality? I think it's more ambition. Um, do we have small drones the size of hummingbirds or dragonflies? Yes. Have we created a swarm? No. But if you look at the Air Force's sort of 40 year long plan, their sort of grand strategic plan that looks out to 2047, Swarm, as they call it, is exactly that. That is the end stage. They've identified that as where they want to go. So lots of tiny drones working together, gathering information, and kind of directing one another. Um, but again, I mean, I think you use the right word. It's more of an ambition than speculation because technologically speaking, we can build these small drones now. I don't think it's that much of a challenge to then load the technology onto them. You could you could autopilot them right now. Now, whether they would go out and crash into each other is another question. But, well, that's, but, 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 but the difference between going out and not crashing into each other and going out and all working in tandem in mm -hmm. a kind of communal insect-like way is a pretty big difference, actually. I mean... You know, you can get a bunch of model aircraft together and fly them in a big swarm, but that's not very helpful, right? right. The, the, the swarm concept is really a concept in, you know, incredible miniaturization and communal insect-like properties mm -hmm. of, of behavior. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I haven't, 
you know, I, I don't doubt that that's coming, but I, I don't have a sense of it as here yet. Um, yeah, and I don't think it is. And, and I mean, you know, again, going back to the Air Force, they say by 2047 they want this. So the bright minds at the Air Force are estimating, right, that with between now and the year 2047, it should be possible. Uh -huh. You know, which is a fairly good metric, and at the rate of the rate of change of these systems was very impressive. I mean, you you just I think one thing to keep in mind is that demand will drive innovation. There has been a demand for predators and reapers and you know weapons bearing drones that can also do very sophisticated surveillance and reconnaissance in Pakistan, in Iraq, and Afghanistan. That has directly fueled the proliferation of new systems, more accurate systems, better cameras, in a fairly short period of time. Yeah, you know, there's, there's a funny relationship here between sort of Moore's law and the dreams of the AI movement. On the one hand, we've all lived through this incredible explosion of technological capability, and things have developed much, much faster than anybody expected them to. Um, and your initial discussion of targeting precision is a case in point of that. That's really fundamentally about computing power as mm -hmm. well as other types of guidance systems. But one thing that has not developed faster than people expected it to was general purpose AI. And, you know, I, the gold standard, I would imagine, of these unmanned autonomous systems is at some level going to be how smart they can be, right? And I, I wonder, you know, on the one hand, everything seems to have developed faster than we expected it to, and on the other hand, machines still don't seem very bright in a human judgment sense, which is, you know, what you want in warfare is good judgment. And so I'm wondering, do, do you have the sense of these systems as having developed faster than the Air Force expected them to, less fast, or about as fast, which is another way of asking, when you hear that 2047 date, do you read that as, well, if they're saying 2047, it'll be a long time before that, or it'll be it'll take a lot longer than that, or that's probably a pretty good guess? I think it's happened faster than anyone has thought. I mean, just talking especially to to people in the technology field, both building the systems and building the systems that control the drones. <clears throat> I did get the sense that the timeline has accelerated, if, if you like. And my my hunch, my instinct tells me that the Air Force's 2047 date is probably too far in the future. And again, this is this is this is getting now you're into the realm of speculation mm -hmm. and sort of you know mm -hmm. best guess. Um, but you raised the question of artificial intelligence and I've found that in this and in other research too, you know, there's there's a lot of disagreement over what what does that term even mean, right? And if we're talking about intelligence, and I'm using the air quotes, when it comes to let's say, you know, swarm drones that are meant for you know combat purposes, um, what I guess you could program a drone to do a lot of things and a lot of things on its own and to make a lot of decisions and account for circumstances that it can't predict. And that might be called intelligent. Now, can you, you know, does it look like you know, data or something like this? I mean, does it look like a robot that we interact with? We'll probably know. And I don't know whether that's 
But I don't know whether that's comparing apples to oranges. I mean, I don't know whether the idea of artificial intelligence is necessarily the, the right construct to apply to what the drones are going to be doing. I mean, they could be relatively dumb systems, but that are very good at doing what they're programmed to do. And I think the question then becomes, do they start learning in that narrow environment about other tasks that they could be doing. I mean, is it, there's also the question in this, if we were, if for me, was, is there some point at which, the, you know, you reach this point at which things spin out of control and the machine starts to learn just enough to be dangerous and then making bad decisions? And that doesn't necessarily mean it's artificial intelligence, although maybe, it, maybe you know, it, it, it creates and achieves intelligence on its own completely apart from us. Right, although, you know, there's another question, right, which is the... There is some point at which it achieves intelligence enough that you don't feel right about using it in what is effectively slavery, right? I, I mean, the, 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 there is this, this point at which, you know, if you really hypothesize machine consciousness, people will get kind of anxious about the way we use it and one of the uh, the way we use these machines and one of the reasons that we don't get anxious about that is that we don't look at them and see ourselves but one of the issues that you're raising is you know how long before that's true both for us but also for them you you end with this question of is should robots have guns in their hands mm -hmm. but there's a self you know how do they see those guns yeah. is part of, the, part, you know, part of the answer to that question. And one of the things that sort of fascinated me is, that, and I'm always thinking about this, I guess, now as we talk about it, but um, if you look at the drones that are being built and the robot systems that are being built, none of them are cute. They all look menacing. They look like wasps. They look like panthers. They look like scary airplanes. None of them look like, you know, kittens and puppies. And, and I just, I, I wonder if... I don't know if this is conscious from the engineer's standpoint, but you know, if these things look menacing to us, we might be more likely to really come down hard on them and try and control them more and be not duped by them because you know, well, you know, the crop drone has feelings too, and you look at it and you say, no, it looks like a scorpion or it looks like a vulture. It can't have feelings. I just, I wonder if there's some sort of subtle human design at play in all of this that because these things look foreign and look like they could threaten us helps us sort of keep them in check and at a safe distance. I actually wonder if that's also the influence of science fiction. That, yeah. you know, you know, Skynet's robots were really menacing looking, right. even if one of them did become the governor of California. Um, <laughs> you know, the one exception. Yeah. You know, basically, um, they're all scary looking machines right. and, and none of them are cute. And I wonder if there is an element of life imitating art here. So talk a little bit about the civilian uses here. The, the dominant theme of your paper is the future of weaponry. But um, there are these references scattered throughout it to crop dusting, SWAT teams, uh, civilian aircraft, um, you know, you know, at... at at how much of this is being driven by the military uses, and, and what is the short-term and medium-term bleed into civilian life going to look like? Well, I think that 
The military has been the main driver of this, but now with the end of the war in Iraq and the drawdown in Afghanistan and putting aside the predators that we have and presumably will have for a while in Pakistan and the sort of special operations contexts of them, um, drone makers, if I could broadly call them that, in the United States have been watching this very carefully and really eagerly waiting for the FAA to lift airspace restrictions or modify airspace regulation such that people could start flying and under certain circumstances unmanned drones for civilian use. So you named a few of them. The, the ones that people point to as the most obvious in the near term would be agriculture. So you would have drones out herding cattle and spraying crops and, man and managing crops by taking temperatures and looking at yields and looking at, you know, the fields from above and finding out where the diseases were, all things that people do right now, and many people do in planes, by the way, but that could be very quickly and easily automated. And in that context, too, it might work because work well in the near term because you could say, all right, um, if you're a farmer or you're a farm company and you have a license to fly the drone within this acreage of your fields and you have to fly it below a certain uh, um, altitude, the chances of you crashing into a civilian plane, which is the, the worry, by the way, in all of this, are very, very low. So the airspace is very crowded, but the commercial airspace is very crowded at a certain altitude, and could you keep the drones away from them? So that's one. Law enforcement is the second con context. Customs and Border Patrol has been testing drones, as I mentioned earlier, for uh, border control and surveillance purposes. Um, there are a number of police departments that have expressed their desire to um, at least consider using drones for SWAT teams or for reconnaissance purposes. And then, so you've got these sort of these very sort of, um, if you like, stable sort of environments in which you could use them and you could imagine regulating their use pretty carefully. And then from there, you sort of, your imagination starts to run wild, right? And this is when you get into the really kind of, you know, 10, 15 years after we've even allowed the drones in for the airspace, let's just say. Um, do you start replacing all traffic helicopter pilots with drones? Do FedEx and UPS decide that it's more efficient to have drones flying cargo instead of pilots who have to sleep and who are restricted from how many hours they can fly and get sick and get old and make mistakes sometimes? You know, the, taking it one step further, the, quite, the obvious question is, okay, well, at what point do you and I get on board a Delta jet that doesn't have a pilot on it? And, and what's, I mean, I, without speculating about what the time frame of that is, is there any good reason why the human being in the loop on a commercial flight needs to be on the plane? If the plane had autonomy, had no, there's not. I mean, right, if, right, if right now we, we fly yeah. drone flights over, you know, over Afghanistan and um, Pakistan and Yemen and God knows where else all the time now successfully. Um, some of them stay in the air for very long periods of time. Um, I, I'm not sure I see why the Delta flight needs to have a pilot in it. Now, whether that plane should be fully autonomous is a separate question. I, I'm, I'm not sure I would comfortably get on that plane. But is there any reason to think that, that the pilot needs to be in the plane? I think his being in the plane would probably make the passengers feel a lot better. Right, but aside from the emotional component. No, no technologically speaking, no. I mean, 
the modern, particularly the modern transoceanic jets that are being built right now are in many ways autonomous. They can take off and land themselves um, with very little interaction and involvement by a human pilot that, you know, is probably not something that the airlines like to crow about very much, but, the you know, the makers of the planes certainly do. Um, you know, there's always going to be, I guess, that's that the question of whether or not well, I take that back. There will not always be this question. The question right now, if you talk to people in the Air Force, and particularly people who are in sort of the fighter jock kind of community, is they cannot imagine that an autonomous system would be better at making rapid-fire snap judgments than a human being. For instance, um, I'm about to crash into a mountain. Um, there's another plane on my wing. Move. Get out of its way. Um, the sort of, you know, Sully Sullenberger kind of moments of we just hit a bunch of birds and over the Hudson River and everything says that we should be nosediving, but the pilot knows a way to get us out of it. I suspect they're completely wrong about that. I think that. they are completely wrong I, I, about I, that. I suspect the answer is most pilots aren't Sully Sullenberger, and they will make panicked judgments mm -hmm. in that situation that may be wrong. The computers will respond very unemotionally, um, make a judgment that may or may not be right, but probably could be programmed with enough computing power to have a higher percentage chance of being right than the panicked human. Right. And most of the airline crashes that happen now are the result of human error, pilot error. Um, you know, and talking to people about this point, who were the, the people I talked to who were sort of more hesitant to embrace autonomous technology, let's say, as I say, well, you can't account for all of the crashes that were avoided by pilots making with that human instinct and human judgment doing a thing that a machine could never do. And that just seemed, you know, like they, again, like they were kidding themselves. You can, because eventually, you know, computers right now think faster than people do. And this ultimately becomes a programming challenge in many ways. On, the other, processing hand, on the other hand, there are these high profile examples of which the Vincennes is the most high profile examples of computer error or complex interactions of computer and human error leading to real disasters, in that case the shooting down of a civilian airliner um, and several hundred people being killed. Um, are we advancing technologically beyond that point, or is that you know, or is, does that fit into the category of these are complex technological systems, they will always have a failure rate, and when you're involved, when the failure rate involves weaponry, that will always involve a certain amount of accidental death. I mean, how should we, how should we think about that sort of thing? I think that yeah, there will always be a failure rate. I mean, no, there's no such thing as a perfect system, and, and yes, there's going to be the, the same way there is in manned flight, the result of, you know, error and accident. Um, you asked if we have, we, are we technologically beyond where we were, like, with the Vincennes system? Sure. I'm sure that, you know, the Aegis systems now are much more, the Aegis, this, these are the, the systems that are on board ships that are automated weapons and targeting systems, um, much more advanced than they were then. But what I find so compelling about that example, and I do not think this has changed, and if anything, it it has become more of a pronounced problem, probably, is that in the case of, of, of the Vincennes and the shoot-down of the Iranian civilian airliner, 
what you found was a great hesitation on the part of the human crew to ignore what the computer was telling them, even though the human crew didn't think the computer was right, that it may not have locked on to an enemy target, there might be more there, that maybe they should wait. And you had this situation where the human beings on the ship literally turned to each other and said, well, the computer knows best, so follow the computer's direction. At that point, that is effectively an autonomous system. At that point, humans have essentially taken themselves out of the loop and said, all right, Aegis, you know what to do. Well, it's actually a cyborg in which the, the computerized component of the sure, system right. is dominating <laughs> the human component. Right, it takes two to tango there. So, so but I, think that, yeah, but I don't think that problem's gone away at all. Uh -huh. I mean, it, how could it? I well, mean, and ironically, the better the technology gets, the more trusting in it we will be. Right? Absolutely. And, and the, the less our instinct to second-guess it may be. Well, take, for instance, I mean, you know, look at targeted killing in the context of Pakistan, right? We know that there are checklists that the CIA has to go through before some, someone gives the order to fire a missile. Um, a lot of the information that's being gathered to compile those checklists is coming from sensors. Let's see the picture. Do we have an electronic intercept? Do we have thermal imaging? What else do we have? What is the computer telling us? All pointed towards the question of, is that target who we think he is? And of course you're going to listen. I mean, by design now, the checklist necessitates listening to the computer. There's nobody on the ground to tell you otherwise. Bottom line, you describe humans being out of the loop in the relative near term as inevitable. What are the circumstances, if any, in which you're comfortable with that? What are the flashpoints, red lights, on which you're uncomfortable with that? I'm uncomfortable when it comes to arming them, both because I think that from a policy and a legal and a moral and ethical perspective, it's just better if we have some human being in the loop. And I know I'm starting to sound like these, you know, Air Force people that I ridiculed as fools, but I kind of sympathize with them, right? I want to have just one foot at least inside that loop. Um, I would be actually quite comfortable getting on an airplane that didn't have a human pilot in it. I would do that. And I didn't feel that way when I started working on this story. But now I feel like if we got to the point where the FAA was going to allow it, the industry felt comfortable building these things and, and inviting people to get onto them, yeah, I'd do it. And probably would feel actually, given what I know about air crashes, which is this weird sideline fixation of mine, um, I think we'd all be safer for it. So there are a lot of the civilian contexts in which I could imagine being okay with that. What about a car that did not have a human driver driving in traffic? I think there are actually less. I would be <laughs> less, so it's a little too crowded. Okay. I mean, maybe the drones could fly in a place where they're very well spread out from the other planes. But, I mean, you know, at the same time, I think to myself, you know, I don't mean to be flip about this, but, like, I say this now, but it's going to be one day when I'm 65, you know, flying out to Los Angeles on the unmanned plane when suddenly, you know, DeltaNet becomes self-aware and crashes me into a mountain. <laughs> and I'll feel like I shouldn't have done this. But, you know, the, yeah, I don't think it's, a, it's, it's an all-or-nothing proposition, but generally the thing that sends up the red flag for me is just don't arm them. Don't create these 
autonomous, approaching, self-aware machines that have things that they can use to kill you or other people. That's, that should be a pretty hard line, I think. Thanks very much for stopping by. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Lawfare Podcast, a project of the Harvard Law School Brookings Project on Law and Security. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. Everyone is saying it's time to return to normal. But what if I don't want to return to normal? What if I want to return better than ever? Anytime Fitness is the only gym that gives you 24-7 access to support. Their expert coaches are there for everything from fitness and nutrition to recovery. So don't just return to normal. Anyone can do that. Return stronger. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Healthier and happier than ever before. Make that your normal. 